Hello and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated. Today, we are going to continue our presidential series and talk about James Monroe, the American statesman, the lawyer, the diplomat, and founding father. As a teenager, he was a hero at, little, at the Battle of Trenton. He was also a law apprentice for Thomas Jefferson. He was a member of the Democratic Republican Party, which if you listen to that podcast, you know what that means. And he was big on foreign policy, you might recall the Monroe Doctrine. With us, as always, is our resident history expert, Jean Anzanakis, and we're going to let her run with this ball. So, like many of the presidents before him, James Monroe was from Virginia. He was born to a wealthy planter family. His parents died when he was young, and he inherited the property and the slaves. Over his lifetime, uh, it's believed he owned around 250 slaves. He called for the gradual abolition of slavery and supported the movement to move freed blacks to colonies in both the Caribbean and Africa, like Liberia, whose capital is Monrovia, named after President Monroe. Yet, Monroe freed only one of his slaves. You can learn more about the enslaved at Monroe's plantation at highland.org. They have brief biographies and descriptions of some of the enslaved at Highland if you're interested to learn more. Monroe was part of what would become known as the Virginia Dynasty. Wait, hang on a minute. What do you mean by Virginia Dynasty? So all of the first few presidents, with the exception of John Adams, all hailed from Virginia. So Virginia kind of becomes this presidential breeding ground. So when we say the Virginia Dynasty... Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, all from the state of Virginia. By the time he was elected president, he had quite the resume. He fought in the Revolutionary War. He studied law under Thomas Jefferson, as you mentioned earlier. He was elected to the Virginia Assembly and the United States Senate. He served as governor of Virginia and as a diplomat to both France and Britain and was both Secretary of State and War under President Madison. So many Secretaries of State had become President that the position would become known as a springboard to the Presidency. This fact will be important to remember when we get to the election of 1824. James Monroe serves two terms as President. Monroe's Presidency is referred to as the Era of Good Feeling, When he was elected in 1816, the Federalist Party had pretty much dissolved. And when he ran for re-election in 1820, there was no major opponent and he won almost unanimously. There was one faithless elector in the Electoral College who had voted for John Quincy Adams. If you listen to our podcast on how the president is elected and removed from office, you know that... Members of the Electoral College are pledged, but not bound. This unity will be short-lived. By the election of 1824, we will see great division within the Democratic-Republican Party. Like Washington before him, Monroe made a goodwill tour of the country when he was first elected. He had hoped to bring about a sense of national unity. His cabinet members were a testament to that goal. 
He appointed former Federalists, members of his own political party. He appointed Southerners, Northerners, Westerners. His cabinet was stacked with heavy hitters, very strong personalities and political geniuses. I mean, we're talking people like John Quincy Adams, John C. Calhoun, who we'll talk more about during the presidency of Andrew Jackson. The desire and the hope for national unity was no match for the growing sectional feelings that would come to a head in the coming decades. Well, what do you mean by sectionalism? What are we talking about here? Sectionalism is loyalty to one's nation or region of the country as opposed to the nation as a whole. In the northern, southern, and western regions, interests, politics, and goals often differed greatly and were in opposition. So in the north, you want to think trade, commerce, industry, eventually factories. In the South and in the emerging West, you're thinking farmers, plantations, slavery. Sectionalist feelings often led to regions refusing to support bills that would benefit another region. Sectionalist feelings made it difficult to see how the prosperity of one region would strengthen the nation as a whole. Senator Henry Clay's American system looked to bring improvements that would help the three different regions. During this time period, we do see sections of the United States supporting things like tariffs and the National Bank that hadn't supported those types of things before. In response to that support, the North agreed to support a variety of internal improvements that would give Western and Southern farmers better transportation for goods and services. There is an understanding of the need to foster growth for both the merchant and the yeoman farmer. When we say yeoman farmer, we're meaning small farms, not large plantations. Domestic and foreign issues that occurred during Monroe's presidency are numerous. One of the first major achievements was the Rush-Bagot Agreement. This was a demilitarization of the Great Lakes region between the United States and British-controlled Canada. Both countries agreed to remove warships with the uh, understanding that there would often be, you know, patrol boats from either side just to make sure everything was kosher, but this is a big step in the post-war of 1812 era. It's a big step towards peace. Then you have the border line of 1818. The border was established between British-controlled Canada and the United States at the 49th parallel and the joint occupation of the Oregon Territory for 10 years. This, again, short-lived. By the 1840s, this issue of the Oregon Territory would need to be resolved, and it would be resolved. The Adams-Onis Treaty of 1819, Spain ceded Florida to the United States. Spain was preoccupied with various revolts within its empire in North America. The Mexican War for Independence began in 1810, and it lasted until 1821. So in 1819, Spain has bigger fish to fry. Florida is also geographically far from the rest of its territory. 
Florida had become a haven for runaway slaves. Many Native American tribes offered protection for those runaway slaves. Native American tribes living in Florida would attack neighboring border settlements. And so General Andrew Jackson was sent to Florida to put an end to these raids. He did more than what was asked of him and invaded Spanish-controlled Florida. But cooler heads prevailed, and Secretary of State John Quincy Adams got Spain to agree to give up the territory in exchange for $5 million. In addition, the United States would give up claims to Texas for the time being. The most famous of President Monroe's foreign policy achievements is, of course, what becomes known as the Monroe Doctrine of 1823. Nations such as Mexico, Argentina, Chile, and Colombia had gained their independence from Spain. The United States recognized the independence of these countries and sought to limit other European colonial powers from attempting to establish influence in the region. This was written by Secretary of State John Quincy Adams. The Monroe Doctrine stated that no new colonization by European powers would be tolerated in the Western Hemisphere. Wherever European colonies existed, they could continue to exist, but no new ones are going to be tolerated. And now that's a very strong wording for a relatively new nation directed towards these European powerhouses. It was a message to Europe that the Western Hemisphere was our responsibility and we would handle it. We drew a line in the sand and we said, this is our territory. This is our neighborhood. Keep your attention in Europe and we will mind our own business over here. Again, very bold statement for the United States to make. Domestically, the biggest issue during Monroe's presidency is without a doubt the Missouri Compromise. It's also known as the Compromise of 1820. When we talk about sectional feelings or sectionalism, the biggest, most critical hot button issue is slavery. Slavery is one of those issues that every time it came up, even as far back as the Constitutional Convention, it was necessary to compromise that issue away because every time we attempted to deal with it, chaos ensued. As the United States expanded its territories, slave states sought to expand slavery into those new territories. Due to higher populations in non-slaveholding or free states, the Senate was the last place southern states had an equal say to northern states. In 1820, there were 22 states in the Union, 11 free states, 11 slave states. When Missouri wanted to enter the Union, it was going to upset that balance. Enter the great compromiser, Senator Henry Clay. Missouri wanted to join as a free state. Unbalanced, the Senate was the last place southern states had an equal say. So Massachusetts willingly gave up territory that became known as Maine. Now, 
Maine had a history of wanting statehood. Maine was a very significantly large portion of territory within the state of Massachusetts and on and on, on and off throughout, you know, the nation's history, Maine, the province of Maine sought statehood, but then went back and forth saying, oh, we need the protection of Massachusetts. So in 1820, when the opportunity arose, they took it, but they also, you know, Maine being a free state, you know, having very strong abolitionist sentiments there, they weren't exactly thrilled, you know, being linked with this compromise, but this is when they get their statehood. Maine joined as a free state. So now you have 24 states in the union. Missouri joined as a slave state. And what the Missouri Compromise did was that it established what becomes known as the 3630 parallel or the Missouri Compromise line. This was set up to prevent further disputes as more territories entered the union. Any state that entered the Union above that line had to enter as a free state, and any state that entered the Union below that line had to enter the Union as a slave state. Now, this would work until the late 1840s when we fight what becomes known as the Mexican-American War, or as Mexico calls it, the United States' invasion of Mexico where we gain a significant amount of westward territory. This line isn't going to work anymore, but it kept the peace for the time being. After his presidency, like most previous presidents, he returned to his plantation in Virginia. He was extremely close with both Jefferson and Madison and worked at the University of Virginia until he became too ill to do so. After his wife's death, he moved to New York City to live with his daughter, where he died shortly after in 1831. He was the third president to die on July 4th. All right. So he joins, I believe it was Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, who both died on July 4th. Very interesting little tidbit. All right. That'll wrap up our podcast on James Monroe. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website at ushistoryrepeated.com and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.